Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today is Trinity Sunday, the only day in the church year that's dedicated not to a biblical personage or event, but instead to a doctrine of the church. Now, this doctrine has challenged theologians for centuries as they repeatedly try to square what the Bible says about God to what is easily understood by mere mortals like us about him. Whenever I try to think about the Trinity, I'm always reminded of a YouTube video that I saw some years ago. It was released on St. Patrick's Day 2011, and it was by an LCMS pastor, Hans Feeney. And the title of it is St. Patrick's Bad Analogies, and it features two 5th century Irish twins, Donal and Connal, asking St. Patrick to explain the Trinity with hilarious and sobering results. You know, they were just simple focus, so they asked, what's this Trinity you're trying to teach us about? Because Patrick was, had just come to Ireland to teach them about God. And so they asked, so he says, there are three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yet there is only one God, right? Okay. Well, they were just uh, simple, uneducated uh, Irish peasants, and they couldn't quite grasp that concept. So they asked Patrick to give them an analogy to capture the essence of what that trinity is. So he tries to accommodate them. He begins with a reference to the three states of water, how ice and it's then there's liquid and there's steam, and they're all distinct, but they're all still H2O. But the twins call him out on that. He says, you're invoking the heresy of modalism which refuses to recognize the three distinct persons in the Godhead, but rather insists that the one God merely reveals himself in three different forms, which is, as the twins point out, was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD. They were pretty wise guys for, for being simple peasants. So the suddenly flustered Patrick continues by pointing out the sun. He said the sun can be experienced as a star and as the light and the heat that emanates from it. And the twins correctly respond that that's Arianism, the idea that the sun and the Holy Spirit are only creations of the Father, not one in nature with him. So next, Patrick shows them a three-leaf clover holds it up, and only to be rebuffed again by an accusation of, this time, partialism, presenting the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as not being distinct persons of the Godhead, but rather different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. He tries again, attempting to put forth the idea that a man can be, at the same time, a husband, and a father, and an employer, but he gets shut down again as Don Allen Connell to write him for trying another trite attempt at modalism. 
And then he has one more analogy, which is his weakest one. And it's about the three different layers of an apple. And they cut him off right there. And they say, that's just partialism again. So Patrick gives up. And he says this, the Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith. And is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. That we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. And the, the twins respond by that. Said, well, how come you held out from us for so long? Quit beating around the bush, Patrick. You know, that's the good stuff. You should have started with that. So, surely we'll have an opportunity to confess that biblically inspired creed, which was most likely penned early in the 5th century and was eventually named in honor of the 4th century Bishop Athanasius and his teachings. It's primarily an expansion of the earlier Nicene Creed that Athanasius and others had so doggedly defended against the Arians, but which also serves as an able defense against modalism and partialism and even later heresies such as Pelagianism. Now, during the 4th century, Athanasius found himself repeatedly in hot water over his staunch defense of the biblical view of the Godhead. He was forced to flee his own church five separate times because powerful political factions took up that Arian position against his own. And for a brief time, the Nicene adherents appeared to be on the losing side. But as it happens with most political movements, the Arians started attacking their own after they consolidated their power. And by the end of the 4th century, they were defeated by the irresistible force of truth. Of course, there are modern versions of these ancient heresies, like the Arianism of the Jehovah's Witnesses who deny that Jesus is God, or the modalism inherent in certain Pentecostal circles where God merely manifests himself as Father, Son, or Spirit on different occasions. Of course, one of the dangers you face when you're trying to analogize God is that God is unique. There is nothing that he can be compared with in all of his creation. Every attempt falls short or breaks down as you examine it, because you just can't, by reason, find something equivalent to God in the things that he has made. God himself made that clear in Isaiah 55, where we read, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, I find the Athanasian Creed's phrase, co-equal in majesty, to be a compelling statement. It's not that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equally majestic, 
but it's that they share the same majesty. There is an interpenetration of purpose that overshadows any perceived role that we might find there. And if you look, you can see it throughout Scripture, but there is one example I'd like to highlight for you. In each of the three synoptic Gospels, Jesus makes a promise to his disciples about something that would happen when they would face persecution for his name. In Mark, Jesus says this, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are saying, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So Jesus here says that the Holy Spirit would speak through them when they were brought before the authorities. Then there's Matthew's take, which is a slightly different reading of this same promise. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious as to how you are to speak or to what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. The the Spirit of the Father is the Holy Spirit, but the Father is intimately connected and involved in the activity of the Spirit. And if that's not challenging enough for you, Luke adds his own viewpoint. As Jesus says, settle it before Therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. To hear the Son indicates that he is the source of the words that a set-upon disciple would be able to utter at the point of trial. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all working in concert for the good of those who belong to the triune majesty. There's one more example of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together for us that I'd like to touch upon. It is Genesis chapter 1 that we just heard. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. In these verses, we see the first revelation of that unique attribute that God has. We see God creating. We see the Spirit hovering over the nascent chaos that was the earliest moments of that creative process. And then we hear the Word of God speaking to mold that primordial plasma as it expanded and cooled to the point that light could first escape from it. The pattern of refinement from chaos to increasing order, is how God set forth this perfect universe he created. And also how, after the fall, reintroduced chaos into this perfect 
world of ours through sin, God would work on his fallen creatures to redeem and refine their corrupted state into something good and holy. God continued to put things in order, water, land, plants, the heavenly bodies, adding fish and birds and living creatures to fill this orderly world. But he wasn't quite done. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. See, God had done all this preparatory work for this to make a perfect setting for his greatest creations, man and woman. We bear God's image in body, soul, and spirit, as Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5. These three make us a compound unity. You knew I couldn't resist tossing in my own bad analogy. Although I'm hard-pressed to find any heresy in that particular one. One last thing. Each of the first six days of creation ended with the phrase, and there was evening, and there was morning. This recalls the pattern of creation from chaos to order, from darkness to light. In contrast, the seventh day, the Sabbath of the Lord, has no evening or morning mentioned there. It's open-ended. It tells us that God finished his work of creation, but he did not cease all activity. The whole of Scripture points to God's continuing involvement in human affairs. In John 5, 17, Jesus affirms this, When challenged over his healing work on a Sabbath, he says this, My father is working until now, and I am working. The cross was Christ's ultimate work of recreation, restoration, and redemption. But the Father and the Spirit also had and still have their roles in bringing order back into the chaos that sin has left in our lives. God the Father saves through the redeeming work of his Son, Jesus Christ, and draws us to himself by the power and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. This is the gospel, and it wouldn't exist without that interpenetrating work of the triune God. The only possible response should be one of praise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, 